I can say that I believe that change is coming, whether we like it or not. I believe that, you know, the way that nature works is that if we don't evolve voluntarily, it will force us to evolve. And nature includes human nature. So, um, you know, we will either evolve voluntarily or we will force ourselves to evolve through very ugly means. And I don't want that. I don't, I believe we can evolve without that. Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast with me, Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we're all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing, and assistance to each other. We will be having conversations to expand your consciousness, help you connect with your essential self and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matters, I have a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, do your own research, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by the Finnish fusion artist Axel Tesla. The song is called Reincarnation. My guest for this episode is Reverend Bridge Feltis, who joined me from her home in Los Angeles. Reverend Bridge is founder, CEO and visionary of The Intersection for Mankind and the Dean and Creator, Advisor and Master Teacher for most of the curriculum offered through the intersection of Mankind's Remember Institute. She is an ordained Minister of Metaphysical Science, having received Master's Degrees of Metaphysical Science and Metaphysical Psychology from the University of Metaphysics and the University of Sedona. Her qualifications and fields of activity are many, ranging from counselling in the areas of intimacy and sexuality to group education in the field of racism, always with an eye to the complex metaphysical nature of human life. It was her work in racism that first called my attention. Due to my professional work with Australia's Indigenous people, the reality of racism and its destructive impact on human social life has been a long interest of mine. It is also a topic that not many so-called spiritual teachers venture into. In fact, there is a lot of spiritual bypassing when it comes to racism, with versions of the statement, I don't see color, being all too common, albeit couched in what seems like spiritually inclusive language such as, we're all just spirit. A sentiment that is meaningless unless the social reality of racism is fully acknowledged and tackled. So I greatly admire the direct way Bridge tackles this reality in her online presence. And from about the 20-minute mark of this conversation, after an explanation of metaphysics, 
This is the focus of our discussion. Bridge explains how she works with racism and how this forms a key part of her spiritual practice. She shares the very moving story of the cruel death of a close relative and the reactions that followed that led her to this work. One of the reasons tackling racism is such a powerful spiritual practice is that racism is so deeply ingrained in our culture. And we cannot bypass our culture and the things that we learned as children. We need to bring consciousness to them, feel how they live in our body, and only then can we transform them. This is the work Bridge helps people to do, and this is why I'm so happy to have her on this program. Finally, as I'm publishing this, the world is shutting down due to the coronavirus. This interview happened before this all began, or certainly before it began in the Western world. So when you hear Bridge struggling with a cough from time to time, that has nothing to do with COVID-19. However, given the current context, the passage from her that I used to introduce this interview seems more like a prediction than it did at the time. So Bridge, it really is lovely and I'm really grateful and look that you're taking the time to talk to me today. Well, I'm really happy to be here. Um, and I really, I think it would be good to start with uh, just bidding, setting a bit of your background because you're a, a reverend in metaphysics. Yes. And when I heard that, I really did not know what that means. So if you could start with a little bit about what that means for you. And I guess in particular, what I would be interested in is um, what paradigm or worldview you hold as a result of your your studies mm -hmm. and, and learning of metaphysics? So, first of all, let me preface by saying that I was brought up in a very uh, Christian family, a uh, family that was very much involved in the church, and uh, my mother is a minister of music, so I have a very deep connection with spirituality. And um, for me, this was the the next level of my spiritual journey to study meta metaphysics, which is the study of our relationship between the different planes of existence. So it's the interaction between the physical, the mental, and the spiritual realms. Those are the three major uh, planes of existence. And studying ways to use practices, uh, spiritual practices, for physical plane manifestation, um, for improving your relationships with the world around you. And I say the world around you rather than just other human beings, because it actually increases or improves your relationship with everything. So the way that you use the tools that you have changes when you're able to drop into a certain state of mind or a certain connection with whatever it is. And so, not just the not just the physical world around us. I I gather from what you're saying, but the world around us at every at every sort of frequency. Right. So yes, there are things as we know that we cannot see. You can't see the air. <laughs> you can see. If you fill a balloon with air, because you've 
got some level of education, you know that what's filling up the balloon is air. And, uh, but you know, it's there. There are things that we can interact with in the realms outside of our physical senses. And uh, just because we haven't gotten to the point where we can scientifically explain them doesn't mean they don't exist. As long as they can't be proven to not exist, any scientist who's worth their weight will even agree with that, that you can't, they can't really deny that something exists. They can only say based on scientific uh, studies whether or not they think it exists or it's possible that it exists. Um, so, yeah, what I'm doing is using spiritual practices such as prayer, meditation, yoga, uh, Tai Chi Chuan, Qigong, and uh, all sorts of thought technologies in order to improve our quality of life, our relationships with each other, and with the world around us. Yeah, so that sounds like a very deep and diverse practice, you know, drawing on all these different traditions. Yeah, it is very deep. I'm still studying. I will mm. probably always be studying. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope, I certainly hope that for myself. I'd like to think that I'll study until <laughs> I leave this. Um, yeah. Um, you mentioned thought technologies. Could you expand a bit on what you mean by that? So, Thought technologies is just a fancy way of describing ways of thinking. Yeah. Um, one thought technology that I teach quite frequently is the idea of having everything you want. And the mantra is, I have everything I want. And anything I do not have, I do not want. And the, the principle behind that is that you actually have access to everything. We are one with the entirety of the universe. We're one with everything. And so you have access to everything. The question is, how bad do you want it? And what are you willing to do to get it? And are you willing to spend the time it takes to figure out how to have the experience of having access to it? So, for example... Uh, let's say I've got $20 in my bank account. I would never say to myself, I don't have any money. If there's something that I want uh, that requires money, or, you know, according to social agreement, it requires money, um, I don't allow that to be a hindrance to my ability to perceive myself as capable of having it. So I wouldn't, that would be an end, that, that would be like a, a block. So, so you're, you're essentially really, it sounds like, I mean, that mantra, I have everything I want, mm -hmm. uh, and if I do not have it, I do not want it. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a sort of a, a technique to help us not drift off <laughs> into sort of unconscious laments, perhaps, that run in the well, background. Well, yes, it's... It's uh, removing the disempowering thought. Yeah. So as long as the only movable factor there is whether or not I want it, 
then I've got to take responsibility for experiencing myself as not having it. So what am I doing or what can I do to experience myself as abundant, as having abundance? And um, you could also use it, for example, with anything. So maybe I feel like I don't have enough love in my life. Okay, well, I may be having that experience. That doesn't mean it's actually true. Love could be right there and I just don't see it or I'm not experiencing it. And there may be some way that I'm thinking or some way that I'm showing up that has it be that I don't experience it. You could live in a house with someone who loves you and don't feel their love for you. Yeah. And that's on you to figure out, okay, what do I need to shift in myself so that I can see that there is love there? And love in particular is one of those things that I have a little bit of a different concept of. I don't think of it as a as the feeling. I think of it as a state of being. And that our state of our natural state of being is love. Uh, because we are one. So anything that doesn't feel like love is a, it's an illusion or a distraction from what's true. There's something in the way for us to, to, to experience way. that. Yes. And, uh, and I gather that concept of that we are one, that is a, uh, an important principle in, in metaphysics, is it? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a basic rule. Um, there are seven principles in a book called the Kabbalion, which is referencing the Emerald Tablets of uh, Jehuti or Thoth, um, who was the ancient scribe of Egypt. And these principles uh, start off with the idea that the entire universe is mental or intelligent. Yeah which means that uh, everything is connected and there's, a, there's an order, even if we can't see it all the time, there's order to everything. Everything is, uh, has a cause and effect. There's rhythm to everything. There's vibration in everything. There's gender, masculine and feminine energy in everything, um, and so on. So yes, we're, everything is connected to everything. And a physicist would be able to confirm this as well. Um, so it's not just a spiritual concept. It is mm. an actual physical truth that everything ultimately is made out of the same stuff. Just put together differently based on vibrations and frequencies. And that's the only separation. We have a function in our brain that allows us to separate things. Um, I can't remember what it's called right now. I'm having one of those. I have these brain farts a lot these days. But there's a function in the brain that allows us to distinguish a pattern. And once we've distinguished that pattern and given it a name, that thing for, for our experience becomes that thing. So a glass of water, at some point we've been taught that was a glass and then that's water in that glass. And so then every time we see that same pattern, 
in this cosmos, we identify it as that glass of water. Yeah, which sounds like a very useful tool to have to, to function in this, in this life, right? In this it very much is. And because that's the only thing we're taught is how to use that. We're not even actually taught to consciously think about it that way. We are not taught that uh, there's things that you don't see that you can't identify the pattern of and that, that some people actually can, but we call them mentally ill. Mm. We diagnose them with some sort of uh, dysfunction or uh, defect because they see things that most people don't. Yeah. And I'm sure if you've talked to any Aboriginal shamans, they've probably said things like this to you before. But that's, uh, that's something that shamans uh, all around the world will say that, you know, things like schizophrenia or people who hear voices or have visions, um, they're not... They're not defective. They're just, they have a, there's something unlocked in their brain that most of us don't have unlocked. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Now it's interesting with Aboriginal um, shamans, which, uh, you know, you do, you do find still in, in some parts of Australia, but uh, mm -hmm. the, they wouldn't even talk about, they wouldn't even talk about that in a sense that um, I think those things are just still taken for granted. You know, when there are people in the community that talk to something that nobody else can see, people just accept that it's what it is. Yeah. they are seeing something and that is a real thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, there's really, are there so many things that we could talk about? <laughs> I, I do, I do want to, I, I, I know I want to get to eventually talking about your work um, with racism and and working with white people, especially in that space. But just before we get there, I would be it'd be great, I think, if you just explain a little bit your your website um, is the intersection for mankind. Yes, and you're talking about intersecting uh, science, technology, art, and spirituality. That's correct. Which is a really uh, rich combination. And I guess it would be interesting to hear a bit about what it is that brought you to those and how you see the interface between those aspects of, of human endeavor. Yeah, I, I think that there have been over the centuries a lot of uh, schools of thought around simplifying everything down in order to manage the masses. And so science and spirituality were considered oppositional of, of each other. Um, even though it's all connected. Um, the original spiritual practices of almost every indigenous culture around the globe includes both. Um, in, the sense, in the sense that the spiritual practice is really around developing knowledge, systems of knowledge, right, and deepening our understanding well, of the Yeah, I mean, it's a, a relationship with the unseen or the unexplained. So there was a time when we thought of things like being able to speak to someone far, far away, like on the other side of the globe, like we're doing right now. That would have been, if it were believed in, it, were, it was a spiritual belief. That's very true. So 
at some point we figured out how to do it through science, but that science came from somewhere. It came from someone's imagination that it could be done. And all of the elements that it took to get there had to be at some point figured out. Energy was not always considered a physical thing. Energy was considered a spiritual thing before it was explained or codified through European science. But it was already being used in ancient Egypt, for example, um, to do all sorts of things. They had running water and irrigation and heat in their homes and all kinds of <laughs> technology that they use, uh, sound, they use sound for all kinds of things, um, for moving things kinetically and just all kinds of uh, really interesting things that they used, it, used these sciences, which they thought of as spirituality. Um, it was just having a relationship with nature. In fact, God, uh, the singular, the monotheistic God of ancient Egypt um, would be Nacher, or what we would call uh, in modern times the all in, hermet in hermetic teachings. Nacher is uh, the, the root of the word nature. So we see there's a a lineage even in the language around the idea that science and nature are also spiritual. You know, there's things that we still don't know. We haven't learned everything there is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think as we're growing in our understanding of the science of nature, <laughs> if you read a book, a scientific book about nature, it could a lot of that could be like a spiritual text. Oh, yeah. I mean, the interconnectedness of life. Totally. Quantum physics is a great example right now of how they're looking at, at consciousness. They're studying consciousness now and trying to figure out what is consciousness. <laughs> you know, this is like a spiritual term and um, scientists are now looking at that. And actually it's not, it's not scientists who balk the most at spiritual beliefs. It's people who, who have bought into the idea that science is absolute. Scientists don't even call any of their discoveries absolute. They call them theory. They always call them theory. <laughs> it's never... It's if you, never finished, it, right? It's never a finished project. It, it's never finished. So... Um, there's some other element happening there socially in our societies where we're taught to kind of block that part of it out. And it's time for us to really get back into that. So that's what the, the intersection is about. We want to encourage people to, uh, in order to expand their uh, quality of life and their experience of everything they do, see, hear, touch, feel, um, by applying all of all four to each other so thinking of art as something scientific and spiritual because you have tools that you have to work with and you have to learn how to use those tools and then you have to put aside that technical um, knowledge 
and actually allow yourself to create, which is a spiritual thing. Right? Yeah. So, um, things like flow state, for example, we talked about this the other day. Uh, when a, when a, an extreme athlete or even an impresario musician, uh, someone who was a prodigy, you ask them, how did they do that thing? How did they do that? Because it seems humanly impossible or it's a record they broke that no one's ever done before in the history of mankind. Um, most of the time they can't really tell you something specific because it's not about a technique. It's about letting go and becoming the thing, becoming one with the, the air. If you're a skydiver, becoming one with your piano, if you're a pianist and, and understanding that that piano is a, an extension of you and treating it as such, just like you would, you don't think about walking when you're walking. You don't have to think, okay, let me move this foot, now this foot, and make sure it's flat. And, you know, those things, we just become one with our bodies. We are not our bodies, but we are one with our bodies. And we uh, do that every day. So for me, um, if I could summarize it down into a, uh, a phrase, I would say it's, it's about dynamic thinking. So thought technology for me means to think dynamically, to understand all the different ways that your brain functions and then use them all instead of being attached to one way. So we need to be able to discern the difference between you and me because we have different experiences and we can't assume, you know, that we're exactly alike and we are connected. So what affects you ultimately also affects me. Yeah. Yeah. And that for me is a beautiful segue to talking about your work in the racism space, because that is really epitomizes what affects one group of people affects the other group of people. Mm -hmm. um, your experience as a black woman in America, my experience as a white guy in Australia so different and somehow yet really intricately connected. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to hear, because it's some, that's something that really drew me to you. That's how I first got, you know, noticed you on Facebook was your, your very powerful sort of statements around um, racial issues. And it's very rare to see that in a context, or at least for me, I've not seen it often, in a context of uh, a deep spiritual practice. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to hear how that, uh, well, there's many things really, but first of all, maybe just how that unfolded for you and how you see that connection between in your own spiritual practice to take that step that must be. Well, I have to tell you, honestly, it was definitely not the plan. I was invited by the founder of a spiritual, a very large spiritual organization to come and do some, some uh, diversity work with her, her community, her community. Uh, because I 
gone to an event and noticed that there were in about 5,000 people, there were maybe five black women and even less black men in the room. And I had, a, I was questioning why that is. Um, for black people, that's always a, that's a red flag. So if you walk into a spiritual community and there's very few uh, people of color in proportion to white people in the space, then it's probably not a safe space. And, and that's just how we see it, uh, just based on experience. And so she asked me to come in and, and work with her community. I did that. Um, I didn't know what I was doing at the time other than just saying what I see. I have really good sight. My brain actually picks up on patterns really well, yeah. <laughs> especially patterns in human beings. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I spent a year and a half working with this community to try and help them to uh, make some changes. And they didn't really cooperate very well. Right. There was they did okay. Resistance to the yeah, idea that. Resistance and some complete dismissal of some of the things that I brought to their attention. And uh, when I left, that was a bit frustrating. I was like, wow, somebody needs to be doing this work in our industry, in the healer and spiritual communities. This work needs to be happening because there's uh, innovation happening in this area that people of color need as much as white people need. And so why aren't we working together? <laughs> you know, why are these places so uninviting? Well, it's because if you live in a white supremacist society, and America is a white supremacist society, it was built on slavery and racism and capitalism and imperialism, um, despite the fact that the people came here were trying to escape those things. They built it again here just with them on the top. So um, when I, I started to have these conversations on social media, and then I got a phone call one day from my cousin in Missouri to find out that her brother was killed. Um, he had been arrested on a Friday for delinquent child support payments uh, that he had already paid and they just hadn't cleared the warrant from his name. They picked him up on a Friday and because he didn't have the money to pay for bail to, to get out of jail until his uh, arraignment proceedings the next Monday, uh, he had to stay there in jail. And he told them that he was diabetic, severe diabetic, and could not survive without his insulin. And uh, they didn't believe him. And then they, he started to get sick, and his girlfriend came and begged them to let him have his uh, insulin. They said, no, you can't. We're not allowed to do that. And then she asked them for medical support. They said, he's faking. We don't believe him. And they let him die. So by Sunday, he was dead. And it was gruesome. If, I don't know if you know anything about severe diabetics, but 
his diabetes was so severe that he could uh, die very quickly. And his blood sugar was at seven, uh, 700 something. And I can't remember what the danger line is, but it's like a fifth of that. Right. So he, he actually lasted longer than he should have yeah. considering. And yeah, that's a, <laughs> well, that really, I mean, that cruelty and it, it really touches a nerve there. We had a case here in Australia, not, um, that long ago that was almost uh, an aboriginal woman in jail she had severe uh, infection and mm. same thing she's faking it um all those things exactly the same yeah, the irony is that i you know my family in missouri <coughs> did not have a lot of money <clears throat> they lived in a very rural part of the state um, and didn't know what to do. And I insisted, you have to sue, you have to fight this. <laughs> Come to find out, there had been seven other deaths in the same facility uh, the same year. Since then, there's all, been... All, all, all of black, all of black uh, men or women? <laughs> Two of them were not. But they were also poor. Yeah. So, oh my goodness, I've got to... <clears throat> Pardon me. That's all right. Huh. The metaphysician in me knows that whenever that's happening, it's because energetically my voice wants to shut down and not talk about this. Yeah. It's a oh, pain. Must, to talk it about. would be so hard. Yeah. So we we went ahead and started to uh, tell the story what happened to my cousin that not only was he killed, he shouldn't have even been arrested because he had already paid his debt. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, the response we got from social media was just appalling. There were people of all races who were saying things like, well, he should have paid his child support on time. There were white people saying things like, well, it's one less N-word that we have to spend our taxes on. There were uh, men who were cursing the, the mothers of his children for, uh, because they thought that the mothers of his children had sued him or called the police on him when they hadn't. Mm. It was a mess. It was just awful. We had thousands and thousands of hate messages sent and uh, threats to my family's life because they were going to sue. And within all of that, there were people that I knew in the healing community. Some of them stepped up and asked how they could help. And so we set up a, a situation where my family could get counseling for several months, they worked with my family. Each of them had their own person that would call them once a week and work with them. But there were also quite a few who just couldn't believe the story was true. We got so many people saying, are you sure that's what happened? How could that possibly be? That's illegal. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> why, why is that so hard to believe that 
illegal things are happening. <laughs> That's why we have the laws in the first place is because people do things like this. And so uh, just the, I don't know, the procession of almost a year of having these conversations really just wore me down. And yeah. people who I thought were my friends were criticizing the things that I had to say about this and saying, oh, it's not about race. This is just negligence. And this is just this. And this is just that. There's no more racism. That's all in the past. Get over it. All this kind of stuff. And so I'm like having to teach people about the history of this country while trying to defend this, uh, getting justice for my cousin at the same time. And, and dealing with the grief of the whole situation. Exactly. And so at some point I decided, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, there were a handful of spiritual teachers and life coaches who were in my inbox because they were too embarrassed. They were afraid that I would, you know, embarrass them publicly if they reached out to me publicly, but they would inbox me privately and ask all kinds of questions that were inappropriate and, I would take the time and explain and then they'd come back with more arguments. And at some point I was just like, I'm not doing this anymore. So I said to them, look, I'm going to create a class and you can pay me for my time and my labor and my emotional uh, stress to teach this class. Yeah. And then I spent three weeks developing a class Honestly, you know, I, I'd never had any training in this. I was just going on what I see. And what I saw was a lot of fear, a lot of uh, lack of self-awareness, and a lot of lack of, of education. And those things together create monsters. So um, the first couple of weeks of this six-week intensive that I teach, doesn't talk about race at all. We start with defining humility and conceit. We define uh, integrity and what it means to honor your integrity. We define oneness as really what humility is about. Not, it's not about making yourself small. Um, and then we talk about beginner's mind how we are conditioned in this country to have opinions about things we don't know anything about rather than entering a space that we don't know anything about and learning, being open to be a student, to ask questions rather than offering opinions or, you know, promoting your way of thinking. Like you show up like life is a classroom instead of a place for you to come and impose yourself on others. Yeah, I love that. I love that focus on beginner's mind because when I look through comments and so on, on, on articles about racism, that's exactly what happens so much that um, we all come with our, all our ideas straight away, why we doubt a certain account or why this can't be so or why this... And to get to that place, that seems like such a such a perfect starting point to allow people to then engage with. 
Yeah, and what it does in those first couple of weeks is it has people become very conscious of themselves because we set some ground rules based on those four distinctions. And then they get to watch themselves break the rules. They get activities and things to read and things to witness in video. And uh, they get to observe how they respond and how out of whack with reality, out of alignment with integrity, their thoughts are, their perceptions are. And, and they can just see it. I don't have to call anybody racist. I don't have to shame anyone. You can just observe yourself interacting with the world consciously <laughs> and see it for yourself. And, and people realize in those first couple of weeks, yes, if you are white and you're born in a white supremacist society, no matter what your intentions are, there are unconscious biases that have it that you contribute or perpetuate or benefit from, and sometimes all three, from white supremacy. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I sort of had, my, my sense is that one of the blocks to us as white people um, even acknowledging racism, seeing racism, let alone really um, owning it in ourselves, is some kind of, there seems to me to be a, a block to compassion. Mm. And, and often even with ourselves. So there's a number of um, incidents, and I don't know, I remember we talked about, you, you said you know The Colour of Fear, the documentary. Mm. Um, I don't know if you remember, that there's an instance where one of the, the white men after many, many hours, literally days in the actual filming of resisting and resisting, when he eventually shifts, it's when he starts connecting with some own of his own pain from something completely unrelated. Yeah, um, or not unrelated. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Still all coming out of the same society. It is, it is. That's, that's very true. Um, I, want for people, I want for people to, to not think about this like, uh, we would think about a traditional fairy tale where there's a villain and a victim. I would like for us to think about it as, yes, there are people in this world who are playing a certain game. And the game they're playing is to see how much power they can mine from the masses, how much power they can mine. And they'll do that with all kinds of devices. They do it, they do it with... Uh, income disparity with uh, the way the education system is set up so that people who don't have money uh, don't get as good of an education as people who do. People are separated in many, many ways socially. Um, we're separated. Uh, we're, we're taught to fear each other. We're also separated by race. And all of these are meant to disempower the people, the masses, from thinking in, a, in an empowered way, from behaving in an empowered way. And this is why even those who actually will admit or embrace the idea that white people born in a racist society have racist conditioning, even those people don't know what to do. They feel disempowered to do anything about it. And, and there are things that can be done. 
first of all, educate yourself. Secondly, you know, when you, whenever you have the opportunity, use your privilege to um, empower someone else who doesn't have that privilege. And that's what I'm doing. I'm choosing to do that because I have privilege. I have economic privilege um, that affords me several kinds of benefits. First of all, I live comfortably and I am, uh, I'm able to take risks that some people aren't because of that, because of the, the amount of money I, I make or the uh, amount of money my husband makes. So I, I, my husband's also white. I also benefit from his white privilege. Um, I'm also uh, able to do what we call code shifting in the black community. And that's to be able to speak different languages, different tones with different people um, because of the way I was brought up in a very diverse family. And so I have that privilege as well. And it makes it possible for me to speak to you in a way, perhaps that I might speak differently to my own mother or, you know, a, a black friend of mine where you can hear me and understand me. Um, it's something that my father raised his children with as a, a way to survive in a white society that you have to be able to work with and communicate with white people. And that's a privilege. That is not something that I should be uh, awarded for. It's, it's, also, it's also something though, just to pause and think about it because uh, I don't think any of us as white people were raised with the ability to communicate with people of color in any other no, way than we communicate we were with any. Taught, we're taught that the way that people of color communicate is wrong. Yeah. And, and it's not just people of color. If you go, I lived in Germany for five years. Uh, people in Northern Germany think that people in Bavaria are stupid because they speak uh, Bavarian German, which is a linguistic thing. It's, and it doesn't have anything to do with uh, intelligence. Nothing at Absolutely. all. It's just dialects. <laughs> but people in the North, uh, you know, the, the, the people right in the very North are at the, the, the butts of jokes a lot as well. The oh, yeah. Ostfriesen jokes. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I have the ability to code switch because when I was growing up, my parents were super strict with us about speaking proper English. And in one way, that was a, a benefit to us. It did mean that we could navigate certain uh, spaces easier in some ways but it also hand handicapped us in our own spaces with other black people, because then those other black people would look at us and say things like, Oh, you want to be white, yeah. which would make you not trustworthy. So um, I'm at a point in my life now where I can see how it is something that I can use as a benefit and that's why I'm doing this course. Most black people I know, they look at me doing this course and they're like, you're crazy. Why are you doing that? It's a waste of time. And uh, I happen to know that it is not because I have worked with a lot of people and seen a lot of change happen.
So for me, it's a, this is not a pipe dream. It's not a fantasy. It's, I'm, I'm a very results oriented person. Uh, if, if the outcome's not working out, then I'm going to try something different. Um, so it, speaks, it speaks to the resignation in the black community though, doesn't it? About there actually being a potential for change. In- well, yeah. I mean, what do we expect? This has been going on since before organized racism. This has been going on since the time of Rome and when the Romans were very much uh, concerned about too much power going to people of Egypt, people of, uh, you know, further west into Turkey and Persia. And, uh, and, and this sort of was spread throughout Europe. And the, the European people and the descendants of Europe don't realize that they're not even, this is why I wanted to say that it's not so simple as the, the victim and the villain. They're, they're also oppressed emotionally and mentally and socially by this structural racism stuff. Because it's not just racism, it's also uh, spiritual persecution, um, economic persecution. All of these things are tied together. Um, all of the problems that we see in today's societies including global warming, all stem from the same structure of mining power, from that same elite few mining the power of all of us. And, and, the, and in America, probably I would say it's similar in most colonized countries, the, the common white man and woman in a colonized society, they're sort of like the... They're treated sort of like the, uh, what did we call them? The, the overseer on the plantation. So in, on American plantations, there was, a, there, there was a class of people who had money and they would own the plantations and get rich off of free labor and uh, actually also free technologies from the poor and African people they enslaved. At some point, uh, there were these rebellions happening and the white people who were poor, who came here uh, owing a debt to whoever brought them here, uh, that debt would be bought by the plantation owner and then they would have to work on the plantation as well. And at that point, they were treated the same as the African slave and they were paid but just a little bit of money and just enough to barely make a soup for dinner that week. And they decided at some point that they were going to rise up against the, the plantation owner. And they got very concerned. Plantation owners like, wait a minute, we got to put a stop to this. And so they decided to turn the white overseers. They, they made them overseers first of all, and then turn them against the African slaves so that they could control those people working on their land. So the classic divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. 
And they did the same thing in Europe with societies in Europe. If you were caught uh, befriending someone who was called a witch, quote unquote, really those were just people who were practicing indigenous uh, customs. Yeah. Then it, it didn't matter if you were their friend, if you were their family member, you could be persecuted, killed, burned at the stake uh, just for, just by association. So this divide and conquer thing has been going on for a very long time. And so what I, what I hear in that is that one of the costs of racism for white people is um, loss of our own power. We're not in yeah. our power. Yeah. Loss of your roots. You don't know who you are. And what happens when you don't know, know who you are and you live in a society where uh, for all intents and purposes, the only thing you're told is white is right by all the media, except you're not really given any reinforcement for that. You know, you're, you're given this, this pipe dream that you can have this American dream or, you know, wherever you come from, uh, there's always this dream that you can become successful. You can become like the rich man or whatever that people chase after, but it's chasing after something that's not real. It's not substantial. It's not uh, sustainable and it's not meant to be. And along with that, the spoken or unspoken agreement is that you separate yourself. You have to see yourself as above people of color. And it really, it, it's, you see this in every colonized country. You see yeah. in some colonized countries where they even will pit different tribes of people against each other. We saw this in Rwanda, for example. Yeah. And I think what, what happens now in, <laughs> certainly in a place like Australia that likes to pride itself as the uh, most successful multicultural nation on the planet is that it's completely unconscious. Uh, I think most, most white people here would, would say, I don't think that way. I don't know that, you know. Um, yeah, I was having a conversation the other day. I posted something about the vegan community, and it was an article that a, what the what community? Northern, sorry, the vegan, ve vegan, vegan, vegan community. Vegan community. Yes. I'm sorry. I get teased all the time for calling it vegan. <laughs> <laughs> I was just imagining some people from another planet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, this this article was about uh, I think they were Laplanders. I want to say. And these, this author was writing about how there's a, a faction of veganism where the people are criticizing cultures that are meat eaters by tradition and that that's their lifestyle. They don't have the kind of uh, soil quality or environment where they can do vegan. I think vegan. being vegan and being a Nordic hunter or herdsman would be a pretty tough yeah. gig. Yeah. And, and so I posted this article and a woman who was, uh, who read the article, she said, I take offense to this. This isn't true. I've led a group of 50,000 vegans and I don't think I've ever heard any of them say anything 
remotely like this. This doesn't exist. And I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. (laughs) First of all, did you interview every one of those 50,000 people to be able to say this? You don't actually know that for, for true, for sure, that everyone in that organization that you ran thinks differently from this. You can't actually say that just because you can say that you haven't come across it. You can say that you've never heard anyone say these things. You can't say it doesn't exist. And, and this is someone who, she said, she said, I would, if I knew that it was that way, then I would do something to change it. I'm like, that's great. Now, <laughs> if that's true, then you have to allow yourself to unblock your denial. She's like, yeah, but I have PTSD because someone thought this about me and it wasn't true. I'm like, hold on. You don't actually know that it's not true. If you didn't understand where they were coming from and you didn't get any help to understand what they were talking about, then maybe you just still don't understand. She's like, I had to shut down my, my uh, organization because of it. I'm like, no, you didn't. You needed to find someone to help you to understand. <laughs> so that, that, whole, that whole process where people just panic when they're called out or criticized about this and just shut down, it's not necessary. The, the canceling thing is not necessary. The shame and the guilt is not necessary. It's natural that you might feel it, but you don't have to act on it. Mm. You can say, okay, please show me where the harm is that I'm doing. Please let me see it. I want to see it so that I can do something about it. Yeah. And, that, and I and think that, that's... I mean, that for me is really deep. Personal growth, yeah. spiritual growth, is to be able to hold that humility and, um, and that openness. Yeah, and it's, it's what's making it hard is that we come from a culture that's very authoritarian, patriarchal, you know, like we have these rules and you must be punished and that's the solution for everything. But in indigenous cultures, if, you're, uh, if you do something that's antisocial or that harms the whole or harms the, com- the community, excuse me, you're, you're drawn in. They, they bring you in and they find out what's going on with you. You know, they take it as their responsibility that you're somehow outside of the culture all of a sudden, or that you're um, abandoning or abusing yourself or others. They feel responsible for each other. And, um, we're taught to just try and protect ourselves at all costs. Don't, don't associate with someone who does something wrong. Don't, uh, and, and I'm not saying this is an absolute either. There, there are things that, there are people you cannot cure who just have to be separated from society in order to protect society. I believe that's true. And um, there's a whole range, though. And we're so hard on each other that just being wrong, just saying something that's incorrect is something that we consider so bad 
that we will defend ourselves <laughs> to great embarrassment and still be wrong. And uh, you mentioned before you used the words shame and guilt, and I, I have the sense that they quite often sit behind that defensiveness. Um, have oh. you found <laughs> something oh that you experienced a lot? If I could tell you, I don't even know how many times I've been accused of shaming or putting guilt on people. I don't have any interest in shaming. I don't even want, I don't have, you're feeling bad about me sharing with you that you've done something that harmed someone. Doesn't matter. You're feeling bad about it does not matter. You could feel bad and keep doing it. So for me, uh, that's a revenge mentality that we don't have space for with this. There are people dying. There are every 28 hours in the United States, a black person is killed by police or vigilantes. Every 28 hours. There's no space for that crap. So there's, there's a discussion that needs to be had, and it's not being had because people are so afraid of being labeled the villain <laughs> because they're stuck in that, that uh, fairy tale paradigm, that, that uh, patriarchal you know, thing where the villain, and the villain, by the, by the way, is always affiliated with darkness and uh, the shadow and always looks very ethnic, <laughs> you know? So you don't want to be affiliated with that. <laughs> so, so we have this huge hurdle to get over, and it's not, it's not as huge as it looks. If we could just have those conversations I'm having in the first couple of weeks of my intensive, where you set the groundwork, you say, look, we're not going to have a conversation about shame and guilt. You can choose not to be ashamed. You can say, yes, my bad. <laughs> I get it. Let me figure out how to change this. Like That's what honor is to me. It's not being perfect. It's being uh, conscious, aware, and honoring of your own integrity. Of, of saying, look, I take pride in my integrity enough that I'm willing to say, I know I did this. I know that I'm doing this. I know that it's harming people. And this is what I intend to do to change it. Yeah. yeah and this great. goes from the simplest relationship to all the way up to, you know, how we deal with government, how we deal with economics and uh, international relations, all of it should be dealt with that way. Yeah. It's, it sounds like really simple and at the same time hard principles of self-responsibility. It's just a matter of breaking habits yeah. and realizing that those habits were never meant to empower us. They were me meant to make us feel small and, and fearful like disapproval is the worst thing on the planet. <laughs> like what's going to happen? Like so many people have disapproved of things I say over the last couple of years since I started doing this course. So many disapprove. I'm still here. I'm still alive. The course is working. Everybody who leaves my course comes out of it 
feeling transformed and expanded and more empowered um, just in themselves and their own, their relationships with anyone, not just with people of color. So it's, I think it's, it's important to understand that the foundation underneath this is the idea that everyone is, is oppressed and white people's oppression looks different from people of color. White people's oppression is this huge illusion of needing to survive by being superior. Yeah. And actually creating, and what I experienced growing up was the message, I have to be a hundred times better than a, black, than a white person to get the same job. I have to overachieve just to have a, a modicum of success in this world um, because I have to be willing to take so much more abuse and um, dismissal and all the ex- extra obstacles that racism puts in the way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a vicious circle, right? So then you've got all this excelling happening from black people that then makes white people even more scared. And it's like, hey, look. <laughs> just trying to get an even even playing field here. Yeah. Let's just, you know, let's see what's actually happening here is that we're all being uh, bamboozled by these, this very small, it's like a few families from what I understand, (laughs) for a thousand years approximately. And uh, we're just allowing it to happen. They're not necessarily smarter or really, they're not even powerful. We're powerful. Mm. Yeah. The the thing that I, there was a a Facebook post you shared a while ago about um, the importance of struggle. Mm. It, was something, it was something like it was early in the year and you said, you know, it's been 28 days in this year and um, if you haven't struggled yet, you're coasting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of an invitation. And, I mean, my sense, and I, I think that's something that's really important from, from what you're sharing here is that uh, this, this, in, this racism and the relationships <laughs> um, it creates and how it, uh, the kind of blinkers it sets for us um, are very real, very tangible, and transforming them is a really deep practice. Mm. And and I guess that is where the struggle comes in. Yeah, it's a struggle with ourselves, the struggle with being in integrity. I don't know. Is there something? Can you talk a bit more about yeah. wh- what you mean by that? Well, what I mean by it is the same thing that a physical trainer will tell you. Yeah, your muscles atrophy if you don't use them. It's use it or lose it. You become more powerful by being in action. You use the power you have and it increases. And how does, what does action look like in this? Well, I'm sorry about all the coughing. That's that's all right. (laughs) I'm also getting over a cold. (laughs) Um, So what does action look like in this context? For the average 
person who is racialized as white. Mm. And I say it that way because you could be a person of color, but the world sees you as white because your skin is fair and your hair is straight. Okay. So that would mean that includes people in Hispanic countries who are of European uh, descent, but who call themselves Latino or Latinx or whatever. Um, But if you are, if you are racialized as white, then the first place to start is to get to know where you come from, get to know your own roots. Because what's happening, what I see happening a lot is people are skipping that step and adopting bits and pieces of practices that they see uh, from other cultures. And that's appropriation. And often it's misappropriation. We see that a lot in the yoga communities or in uh, oh all all kinds of communities. You see, you see people with their feathers and their hair and the face paint and <coughs> dancing around a fire. They have no idea what they're doing or collecting crystals. Don't have a clue what to do with those crystals. They're just collecting them because somebody told them they mean this or that and the other. They don't know whether they're mined ethically or anything like that. So starting with your own roots, if you can find out where you come from, what kind of tribe your people were from, um, find out something about the traditions of that culture. Um, And then once you've done that, then compare it with others, study other indigenous cultures. And that will eventually lead you to Africa because ultimately we're all from Africa. 150,000 years, I think, is the amount of time between uh, now and when the first African left the continent of Africa and started to migrate. I think uh, on that, they seem to keep coming up with new findings here in Australia that seem to either push out those states or maybe have us rethink altogether about. Well, I think Australia, if I remember correctly, was part of Africa at some point. This is why the Aboriginal people look so much like African people. And you can find this around the world, by the way, if you look at uh, the most remote parts of China, for example, the people look very African. If you look at indigenous people from Northern and Southern America, the people look very African. And there are architecture in these places that looks very much like the architecture of Egypt. (laughs) So, and those, there's no, um, I think there's something like five phenotypes of African uh, people. And then, one of those, or one or two of them migrated to uh, the European continent, which is really Western Asia. <laughs> and uh, there's a book, I'm trying to think of the name of it right now, Iceman. Uh, I will find it and I'll send it to you. Yeah, I'll uh, put it in the, in the notes. Yeah, there's a book that talks about how at some point the African uh, people uh, mated with 
the Neanderthal people. And this is how we come to having people with whiter skin. And, uh, and it's also culturally or uh, psychically why there seems to be this origin of like severe violence coming out of that area. It's because that, that area being Europe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's because the, the relationship with nature was very violent in, in those areas because it was so cold. It was very hard to survive. And so when your relationship with nature is such that you have to be in this uh, conquer mode all the time, you know, there's not enough of anything. There's not enough of anything, not enough warmth, not enough food, not enough water, not enough air. (laughs) So um, it perpetuates a way of thinking or a trauma in the DNA and gets passed down. There are things passed down that we don't even know we're passing down. My, my grandmother uh, was from Mississippi. And when I was a kid, we used to stay at her house a lot when my mom and dad were at work. And when she would tell us to do something, for example, if she wanted us to go clean up our toys or sit down at the kitchen table, it, it was always, there was always a, a threat on the end of it. And my grandmother loved us to death. We had so much fun with her. But when she would ask us to do something, it was always uh, clean up the toys before I beat your back. Or, you know, and, and it was said nonchalantly, like, <laughs> and we didn't know any better as kids. So we don't know what's coming into our heads. And again, she loved us to death. She was not a violent person, but this is something that uh, her mother did with her. And her mother's mother, who was probably a slave, was talked to that way by the slave master. And so you learn from the, from the slave master or the, or the overseer that this is how you talk to people to get them to do what you want them to do. Like matter of factly. And those things really travel down the generations unconsciously until we, until we bring them into awareness. Right. Right. So when you say, say to a white person who doesn't know about that stuff, you're racist. You're like, what? (laughs) because they're not conscious of those things. All those biases are ingrained in us so many different ways. From the time you were a child, if, if you ever read, I don't know if you've read any of the German uh, fairy tales. Yeah, of course. Listen, when I had my son, his German grandmother sent us a packet of German children's books and there was one called Struvelpeta. That is horrible. <laughs> oh my gosh. And she was so excited to send us these books because it was his German heritage. And, yeah. you know, I was excited and I'm starting to open these books and look at them and read them. And I'm like, oh my God, 
this is extremely racist. This is very violent. They're cutting off fingers. <laughs> you know, and this is something that was read to children. Yep. I actually, I had it read to me. And as I'm thinking about it now, I hadn't thought about that for a long time. Right? So <laughs> I might have to revisit that. Yeah. We don't realize that these things are going into our heads and, and why they're, they're being read to us as well. These are almost always having some sort of moral to the story. Yeah. There's, there's one about uh, a Moorish boy who's very, very, very dark skin. And the children are, are making fun of him. And the wizard comes along. I think it was St. Nick, actually. It was Nikolaus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so St. Nick comes along and he sees these boys making fun of the Moorish boy. And he says, shame on you. He can't help that he's black like tar. And to punish you, I'm going to dip you in black ink so you can see what it feels like to be black like tar. Mind you, also, they didn't refer to the Moorish kid as he. They referred to him as it. <laughs> and made it like his, his skin color was a, a disability that he, that, you know. Yeah. You should feel pity for him. <laughs> he can't help it. Don't make fun of him. It's like almost controversial in the sense of being uh, like racial progressive for that time, probably. Yeah. So, yeah, we get taught these things very young by parents who aren't aware. And um, I remember growing up you know, watching Disney movies with princesses who were all white and blonde and witches and villains who were all dark olive skin with big noses and messy hair and how my mom would straighten our hair and what that took. Mm. You know, two to four hours a week were spent just on our hair to try and make us more presentable in white society. And then as teenagers to put that, that lie chemical in the hair to straighten it more permanently, which burned the scalp. So we'd be in tears, like spending four hours in the beauty salon to get this done or at home to get it done. All to be more presentable to white society. Yeah. And there's just now there's a in America there's a, a there's a woman who is who just started something called the Crown Act and she started this because it's it was made legal last year I believe. Yeah, last year it was made legal that an employer can fire a person for their hairstyle. They can that, fire you for wearing. So that, was, that was made legal. Yes. At this time. Well, it wasn't illegal it was, in the first place, but somebody was disputing it. Right. And uh, the court found that it's a legitimate. Right. Yeah. Because you have these things. I, I see it regularly. Kids not being allowed to go to school or not being allowed to go to their right. final graduation. And, right. For having hair like mine right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with these twists. Yeah. And, you know, white people can wear braids to work. <laughs> nobody's telling white people they can't wear braids to work 
but because black hair is much thicker, it's kinky, it's very curly, and it requires a lot more to manage it. I mean, this is tame for me. Yeah. If my hair were not twisted like this, it would be this big. And so, uh, you know, even that is going to lengths to tame myself, you know, tame down my appearance so that others are not uh, distracted by it in some way. And that's what they're doing with schools. And that's been so, coming down through the generations. I'm just really getting that depth of that, you know, like there's a people, a people taken from their countries where they were free and able to live. Yeah. And, 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 and what then, it is, is, is the de- demonizing of everything ethnic, everything not white. So if you if you're dark skinned, you're dirty. You're you're a field worker. If you are, uh, I mean, you see how this has affected places like India and uh, Eastern Africa, where the trend for bleaching the skin is so popular. Mm. Um, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I know a lot of Asian countries are very big on bleaching the skin because the whiter the skin the more you're considered upper class because it, it's, uh, it's an old stigma that dark skin means you're a field worker. You're yeah. like in the lower end of the rung, the lower rung of the ladder. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So all, all of these things are about separating or othering people of color and having it be that, uh, people look at us as if we are less than in some way or not acceptable. We're not, we are not appropriate. Yeah. I, I wonder to wrap it up. Um, if there's anything that you would have to say, or like to say to, to white people that are, especially people listening to this audio, to this, this podcast will be in one way or another, let's say into spiritual practice um you know growing personal growth expansion of consciousness all of that um what would you say is there some sort of message you'd like uh white people listening to that to 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 take away um you know i can't speak for everyone i can only speak for myself i can say that i believe that change is coming whether we like it or not i believe that you know the way that nature works is that if we don't evolve voluntarily, it will force us to evolve. And nature includes human nature. So, um, you know, we will either evolve voluntarily or we will force ourselves to evolve through very ugly means. And I don't want that. I don't, I believe we can evolve without that. And the more of us that, that volunteer, to do so, to educate ourselves, to connect with people that don't look like us, to be uh, practitioners of beginner's mind, humility, and uh, the, uh, what else? <laughs> the uh, honoring of our own integrity, our own wholeness and oneness with the world around us. Um, if we can begin to be more conscious of that, 
then the world will be such a, so much of a better place. And, and that includes like all of the really uncomfortable uh, elements that we are afraid to deal with that we're trying to avoid. Uncomfortable conversations, um, people disapproving of us, people disassociating with us. Um, what are you living for? You know, what is, what do you stand for? What do you live for? What do you wake up for every day? And what are you willing to suffer for? Because you might suffer some for, for making a stand, but is it worth it? Is it worth it to be a part of the evolution of human, humankind that we come together and uh, be the sort of peer pressure that changes the direction of the way that things are so that we can survive and then thrive in a way that we have not yet seen. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Thank you, Bridge. Thanks so much for taking the time. And, uh, you know, I, I hope maybe we'll get a chance to dive into some other aspects of your practice in the future. I, I'm so happy to be here and, Thank you so much for having me. Um, if, if anyone is interested in taking my course, you can find it online at the Intersection for Mankind, looking under the tab, uh, Remember Institute is the name of the, uh, the school, the education portion of our the Remember Institute, yeah. Yes. And uh, we'll put a link to your website with, these, with the notes for the, this episode. Um, and yeah, including uh, information about you and all of that contact details. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. The tune Seeing Us Out is another one from Axel Tesla. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution, which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies. <laughs>